Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, uh, we're going to return to a topic that is near and dear to both of our hearts and one we haven't addressed a, a lot over the past few months, and that's all about Chinese technology and ICT, Internet communications technology, the emerging Internet market in Africa, and all of these great things, in part because two stories crossed our radar this week that I thought were so interesting. First is the emergence of a new $35 million dollar a Chinese-built data center in Tanzania, and also the selection of Djibouti as a hub for China Telecom's new One Belt, One Road uh, data communication center. Now, all of this may seem kind of like, you know, not that interesting, but really at the end of the day, Kobus, and this is going to be the headline uh, of our show today, is the Chinese don't get the credit that they deserve for building out Africa's internet market. And I think that really is just a shame. I agree. And you, you know, in order to see it in context, you have to take into account that a internet in, in, in large parts of Africa is pretty bad. Um, you know, kind of it's, it's frequently difficult to get a signal. Wi-Fi is a horrible situation. Um, so this is not going, only going to improve internet in those two particular countries. It's going to improve internet over in the entire East Africa and parts of Central African regions. So this means that it could revolutionize both the economy and the kind of social space in these countries. Now, let's kind of back up a little bit and go back to, say, 2009, 2010, uh, the Internet was barely existent in Africa and much of Africa. Maybe the major cities of Nairobi and Johannesburg, uh, you know, had, had, had decent Internet connections. But the rest of the continent, for the most part, uh, was not connected. And so that meant that for the most part, uh, you either had a mobile phone, which even in that time, you know, 10 years ago, wasn't that widespread in, in most parts of the continent. Um, and then the arrival of the Chinese come. And what did they do? What they did was they got to work in a uniquely Chinese way, whereas an ICT consultant, a telecom consultant from the French conglomerate Alcatel or the Swedish conglomerate Ericsson, when they come to, you know, a country like Mali or they come to Kenya, wherever, uh, they put them up in the five-star hotels, uh, they're very expensive day rates, and it's extremely expensive for them to work. That's, the, that's been the modus operandi of the West for a very, very long time. Meanwhile, Huawei and ZTE engineers come to town, and they live like peasants. Their master's degrees, some of them are very, very specialized, and they're building out these massive back-end data networks and router networks to connect, basically, to build an internet system from from scratch in places like Kinshasa, in, in Lubumbashi, uh, in, in Gome, in uh, you know, all of these different places uh, throughout sub-Saharan Africa and even North Africa as well. And that has gone and largely even on unnoticed. The, the islands around, even the offshore islands now, like Comoros is putting on a, a big network with, China, with Chinese money. And, and that is brutally hard work to do. Uh, particularly in the conditions and the budgets that they're building a lot of these things in. So that's the back-end side. And Kobus, let me ask you another question. Let me ask you right now, just without thinking, how many of your students have smartphones in your class? All of them. Of course. Uh, do you have any sense of what kind of phones that they have? It's a mix. It depends a lot on, you know, kind of on, on their, their background. So, you know, kind of some of my students are legit upper middle class. Um, you know, this is, a, this is a prominent and, 
you know, kind of somewhat like expensive universities. So um, some of them are upper middle class. Some of them are making it into the middle class now, like high-end Samsungs or Apples, um, like iPhones. Um, but a lot of them will have uh, Xiaomi. You know, they might have Huawei. Um, those are, you know, the, those are the, the kind of starter smartphones for a lot of them. Well, that's actually changing. And this is the point that I wanted to get to as well, is on the front-end side, the consumer side. So we talked about the back-end side, which is building out these networks and these data centers and these router networks. But on the front-end side, the Chinese have been extraordinarily innovative in building out products specifically designed for emerging markets, in many ways, like Cobus's students. Uh, now, Kobus, you're belying here a little bit of, of snobbery when you say, you know, Samsung and Apple are the kind of the premium phones, because what's interesting here is that the Chinese brands like Huawei and the P9, uh, the, the Xiaomi phone, are very much in demand. And some of the, the Samsung users and the Apple users now are increasingly abandoning that tier phone to go to these Chinese-made phones, particularly in places like the developing it's, world. Yeah, Definitely, and also it's interesting, you know, kind of just just from a from a South African perspective. Um, I was walking through quite a, a swank kind of mall in Johannesburg recently, and there were these massive banners up um, advertising new high-end smartphones from Huawei, um, and they had done a lot of collaborations on the cameras with Leica. Um, so they were clearly kind of positioning themselves as a high-end, like iPhone-level high-end smartphone, mm, while also servicing all of all of the different kind of market niches, you know, kind of on the cheapest side as well. That's right. And that affordable side is where the Chinese have sparked a revolution. And this is one of the world's most important technical revolutions that most people in the West either don't understand or ignore altogether. And it's critical. Here in places like Vietnam, where I live, uh, in the past three or four years, I have seen um, just an incredible transformation happened in front of my eyes. This was a country where, you know, about 50% of the population of 94 million people have access to the internet. There's uh, about 120, 130% of the population have phones, which means that a lot of people have multiple phones to their name. And for a long time, they were using feature phones, which were these Nokia phones for the most part. And that was popular in Africa as well for a long time, which were these really durable, very simple WAP-enabled phone. That's the wireless uh, protocol for typing in kind of messages and doing kind of short, you know, short text and phone. But it was a very simple phone, but it was just a keypad and basically a microphone and sometimes an FM radio. And what the Chinese did is they came up with the formula for a sub $100 smartphone. And on top of that, they came up with a formula for a sub $100 smartphone that in many instances was dustproof and waterproof. And that proved to be transformative in much of the developing world that we're seeing now in India, in South Asia, in South America, and particularly across Africa. These are brands like Huawei, uh, Lenovo, uh, ZTE, and they're producing this one sub $100 smartphone that is bringing the next billion people onto the internet. And that is really where the revolution is. And it's a revolution not only in terms of people getting to use phones. It's also, it, it's, a, it's a massive kind of social and political uh, upheaval and transformation. Um, like earlier this year, I did a, I did a big um, project with, with all of my first year students. Now this is a class of about 500 students. Um, and I made them all take a diary, like keep it a week-long diary of every single time they use their phone. Um, it was a way of making them think of their phone 
as you know as the the role of phone in, in their lives and then by by extension the role of media in their lives and it was very interesting to read these diaries. In the first place, they all have phones, like all 500 of them had phones. Um, and in the second place, almost all of those were smartphones, like very few of them had feature phones. Um, and they were all, you could really see how they use the phones in very political ways. Now, you know, kind of like South Africa is going through a very politicized moment. There's a lot of leadership struggles, a lot of, um, you know, kind of a lot of uh, generational struggles in, in relation to where the country is going to go politically. Um, and all of this is playing out on Twitter. And all of it on, is playing out on Twitter on people's phones. Like, like these people, these students almost don't use um, computers very few of them actually own laptops. Um, they they do almost everything on their phones. So it's it's you know kind of this like this smartphone um, kind of cheap smartphone technology is is driving an entire kind of social revolution in Africa more than just simply a, a you know kind of a, a data use revolution. Yeah. So that's on the software side, and let's kind of dive into that a little bit because you know this is where Facebook and Google are also playing a very important role in addition to Twitter and social media. So Facebook, you know, they were going to be launching uh, a rocket. Uh, they, they were part of a rocket launch uh, to launch a new satellite that would have provided, you know, enhanced uh, Internet access in Africa. But that rocket exploded. And that was about two months ago, if I recall. And yes. so that set back Facebook's ambitions to kind of add connectivity. I know Google has also been spending money and time developing uh, improved connections in Africa. But on the social media, that's where the Chinese, in fact, are not doing so well. So a lot of people don't realize that, you know, the world's most popular social media network is Facebook. But the number two is a Chinese one called WeChat. And WeChat is a Sino-African company that actually runs that. Tencent, which is part owned by Nashburs, which is in your neighborhood in Johannesburg there, if I'm correct. Uh, I think it's based in Johannesburg. Um, it's based in Cape Town. It's based in Cape Town. And so uh, stand corrected. But they've been trying to bring services like Nas like WeChat to Africa. Uh, they've been trying to bring the Chinese search giant Baidu, who is in, a, in an agreement with Orange up in, I think, uh, in Morocco or, or North Africa, somewhere like that. And they haven't done very well. So just as excited and enthusiastic as I am about what the Chinese are doing on the hardware side, um, there's not the same story on the software side. And I think that's in part because I think they've got a big trust problem. Um, I personally don't use any Chinese... Uh, social service that I don't have to, so I use Weibo, but I, you know, I do that in Chinese. I would never do it in my personal life in English because ugh, it just feels weird. Do you know what I mean? When you've got Facebook there and you don't know what the Chinese are doing with the data, and you've got this weird kind of political state on the back end of the Chinese side where all that data is going to. I mean, again, I know a lot of people can say that about the U.S., but it just doesn't feel as creepy as do, sending your data to China. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of Africans are also reluctant to do that as well. I wouldn't count out WeChat as yet. Um, the thing you have to remember about WeChat is that because it's connected to Nasbash, Nasbash is one of the, the largest players in entertainment technology in Africa. Um, it runs, um, it runs a, a satellite TV 
a company called MultiChoice, um, which is in, in a lot of African markets, it's essentially, it has a satellite TV monopoly. Um, and it is running, all its promotions is running with WeChat. Um, so WeChat is being promoted very aggressively in, in the African market. Um, and I think, uh, you know, kind of obviously WeChat in China is something different than, you know, just simply simply a kind of a messaging service. It includes a whole lot of other functionalities within within the WeChat, um, you know, uh, platform where you can call a taxi, you can do everything like basically from what you would do on, on Amazon to Uber to messaging to everything. Within it's the really same, just within the, it's the whole app. Internet wrapped it's, into a single app. Literally, and I think that I've see, I've heard kind of noises that they are planning to to start launching some of these capabilities in Africa, um, possibly as a as a kind of a testing ground to see whether they can kind of get it off the ground, you know, kind of in other markets as well. Um, so I think it's it's very worth looking out for at the moment in South Africa. At South Africa, is, is has one of the largest the, the 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 strongest market penetrations of WhatsApp anywhere in the world, um, and so South Africans love WhatsApp. They just use WhatsApp. WhatsApp on a daily basis, um, and so unseating WhatsApp is WeChat's biggest problem in in, in South Africa, you know, especially. Um, but if it manages to launch the, these kind of uh, consumer add-ins, that uh, you know, at, at the same time, that might do the trick. Keep yeah. in mind that um, that the Chinese have already managed to launch Singles Day, um, that like day when like online shopping it's extravaganza 11, 11. where people buy stuff for themselves because it's they're 11, single. Yes, the, it's, yes, it's, on, it's on November 11th, 11th November. because it's the 11-11 are the four kind of sticks that they way that they t- they describe it. So it's all about Singles Day. Singles Day, for those people who are not sure. familiar with it, was a creation of Alibaba, the online e-commerce giant. And they did something like $17 billion in sales in the single 24-hour period this year alone. Mm. Uh, last mm. year it was like 11 mm. or $12 billion. So the rest of the world has kind of looked at that and said, uh, yeah, I want to get a piece of that. So Amazon yeah, now is yeah. doing a singles so they've already, day. They've, Africa's doing a singles day. Yes. Um, they launched it in Kenya last year and it apparently did quite quite well. And I think that they're, they're probably planning to launch it in, in South Africa. I, I, I think this year everyone was distracted by the American election, which happened very, very, you know, kind of in, in, the, in the same time as that date. But I think next year we'll probably see a lot more action on singles day in Africa. So I, the reason why I'm, I, I mean, okay, I'll give you a little bit that WeChat may have a chance in Africa simply because of the support of Nashpers. But the key to WeChat is not the platform itself as a messaging app, because you're right. In that sense, WhatsApp will do the job just fine, or Facebook Messenger. There's so many different Vibers, another one. There's so many different apps that people can use to communicate with one another. What makes WeChat so incredible in China is I can book my dog haircut, I can then pay for a restaurant, I can then get my kind of my DD quite my my app to, you know, to my car to go take me somewhere, I can do everything without ever leaving WeChat. So the services that are built in and integrated into the app are what make it so killer. Now, the problem is, is in places like Vietnam and Africa, WeChat has the vendors and the companies have not really kind of partnered up to do something like that. Plus, there are existing local competitors. Here in Vietnam, we've got Zalo. Uh, I know in Kenya, there's some different apps as well that are starting to do kind of e-commerce and, you know, functionality kind of things like what WeChat's doing. So it's a very fragmented market. There's also on top of that, Facebook is starting to add in some of those features and functionalities. So Facebook, one, can't be kind of discounted to rival WeChat in places like Africa. 
So it'll be very interesting to see if they can compete, the Chinese, as effectively on the software side as they clearly are doing on the hardware side. Copus, before we run out of time, let's go back to what we talked about at the top of the program and this new data center that's coming up in Tanzania and what it represents. And in so many ways, I think this is really, really important because you talked about the connectivity that people have. And that's really the key to developing an an internet market, an e-commerce market, political movements, all the things that come with being online come through first having a good, stable connection. As you and I both know, uh, most of the connections in Africa suck. Um, True broadband Mm. is not really dependable. I mean, when you look at, you know, in Singapore and in Korea, where you're getting two, 300 megs on your phone in the subway, and you think about what it is to get a stable connection in Johannesburg, it's, you know, it's tragic in many ways. And so getting that connectivity yeah, up it's better than is it used critical, to be, but it's not great yet. Which just surprises me that of all places, Johannesburg, which is, has such a modern infrastructure in so many ways yet is still in the dark ages in terms of internet connectivity. But so that's why I look at what... Yeah, I mean, you know, kind of it, it depends a lot, you know, kind of on your particular situation. Uh, it could be much better. It's, it, it's much better than it used to be. You know, so it's like it's on its way. I guess it's all relative there. Um, but, you know, that, but that's why this, you know, this headline that crossed about the ICT data center out of Tanzania that will then feed you know, up to four or five countries in kind of Eastern Africa into Rwanda, that data center from Tanzania to Rwanda, even to the DRC. Uh, Let's see, where else were they saying? Uh, It was uh, Tanzania. I think it was Tanzania, DRC, and Rwanda were at least three of the countries that this is going to uh, to feed. They were talking about Mozambique Mozambique being connected in there as well. That's right. And so building out, I knew there was a fourth one that I just couldn't remember. Uh, So building out these data centers, though unsexy, does not get the headlines, um, to me is so critical to the everyday improvement of life for millions of Africans. And it's also critical to East Africa's, you know, ambitions to become a, a big logistics hub. This is a new thing that, that you're hearing a lot coming from, from both Kenya and Tanzania and uh, Djibouti, that they, all of them, they are really planning to essentially take some business from places like Dubai because they're so they're relatively close to there and they can fulfill a lot of the same the same logistics services that, that places like Dubai and Doha do. Um, and, you know, so, so this is a massive step in that direction. Imagine the possibilities of doing in East Africa what's being done in West Africa. So in the Ivory Coast, there are call centers now for the French-speaking world in Belgium and in France and in Switzerland. So because they've got some decent connections between the Ivory Coast and European continent, it allows to open up these opportunities for employment that didn't exist uh, just a few years ago. The outsourcing, offshoring of intellectual services as well. So here in Asia, more and more you're seeing the outsourcing of a lot of accounting, of hospital record management, database management, things that were used to be done in the United States are now being done in India and the Philippines and even in places like here in Vietnam as well. So it's not even just on the logistics side, on the manufacturing side, but it's also on the services side that these new telecom centers can really open up tremendous opportunities. So again, I just I, I saw these headlines this week, Cobus, and I said, I think this is a story we should do, in part because I don't think that the Chinese get the credit that they deserve for really kind of transforming this this you know this internet revolution in, in Africa. And I don't think most Africans fully appreciate who is behind it.
Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. And I think I think it's really important to keep your eyes on it, you know, kind of and just see how it develops and, and where it goes and, you know, kind of which places it connects to which places and so on. I think I think it's going to be fascinating to see in the future. It is going to be fascinating to see. And I encourage everybody to kind of keep an eye on this story. So the companies to watch there are Lenovo, ZTE, and Huawei in particular, both on the front-end work that they're doing, but also on the back-end infrastructure work. And we'll continue to be posting these uh, on our Facebook and have more discussions of this in the new year. And Cobus, I know we weren't going to talk about this, but I think, you know, let's give a little bit of a, of a tease of what's coming. Um, we're going to be expanding, Cobus and I, from just doing the China-Africa project to actually focusing on topics like this uh, in global technology. And global technology for us means really anything that's related to tech in culture, politics, education, society, arts. Uh, certainly dissent, you know, obviously geek IT kind of stuff. And we're going to focus on all the places that are underserved in terms of attention for doing this, places like South Asia, Africa, South America, Eastern Europe, and talking about how technology is changing those different parts of the world. Yes, if it's happening outside of Silicon Valley and London, we're going to talk about it. That's basically it. So we'll be launching a new podcast in 2017 and potentially new microblogging on, uh, you know, on Twitter and some on Facebook and things like that. So keep an eye out for that coming in 2017. We're very excited to, to do that. And so and also this was a little bit of a tease of the kinds of topics that we're going to be featuring in our new podcast coming up next year. So until then, we'll be back with another edition of the China in Africa podcast uh, next week. And for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at E. Olander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa.